Well, thank you, man. Thanks, Amanda. Y'all, it's so good to be here with all of you. It's so good to worship with all of you. That last, uh, that last verse in that last song, Gracious Redeemer, you looked upon me, and long before Eden, before the creation of the world, you knew my great need. That stuck out to me this morning. It's good to be with you. Well, hey, my name is Bradley Reese. I'm on staff here at Orchard, and normally I work with the worship team and the student ministries here in Cedar Falls, but it's really good uh, to hang out with you and to share with you this morning. We are in our fourth and final Sunday of the Advent season. Christmas is almost here. Can you kind of, can you feel it in the air just a little bit? Yeah, I see it now right there. You can feel it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this Advent series, we've been spending time exploring the idea that in the Incarnation, In the birth of Jesus, God, in his kindness, was actively moving toward the mess of humanity in order to save us. And this is something that he continues to do each and every day for each and every one of us. So this week, I'm really excited to share with you the messy story of two people named Zechariah and Elizabeth and how God drew near to them in a deeply personal way, even as he was doing this incredible work that we celebrate at Christmas. But first, I want to start with a story of one of my own personal messes. You can relax, this is from junior high, okay? And if we're all most honest, junior high was like one big mess for all of us, right? But this particular story has earned a spot among a series of stories that have come to be known in the student ministries as stupid things that Bradley did one time, okay? So students, if you've heard this story, uh, please don't give away the ending. So this one time. This was long before I met my amazing wife, Alex. I had a crush on this girl named Mackenzie. It was the summer of 2005. A band called Nickelback was taking the world by storm with this song that starts with the words, look at this photograph. I was 13 years old and I was absolutely convinced that Mackenzie and I would one day look at this photograph of me when I was 13. (laughs) Yeah. And she would tell me how she fell in love with me. She fell in love with this hopeless romantic, this lover of pretzels, and this hair that kind of looked like a mushroom. So one day, I'm hanging out with a bunch of people in the neighborhood, and Mackenzie drives up in her golf cart because she was so cool that she had a golf cart. She parks it, and a bunch of people hop on, and we're all just talking when I get this incredible idea. I look at the golf cart, and I realize that no one's in the driver's seat, and I think to myself, I know what will make Mackenzie want to date me. I'll hijack her golf cart, and I'll drive straight down this really big hill with all the people on it, right? I know what you're thinking. Bradley, if you want someone to like you, you should probably not steal their vehicle. And to you, I would say that I wish you were there in the year 2005 because I really needed your advice, but you were not there. So I did this very stupid thing. I jump in the golf cart, which, by the way, I had never driven before, and I hit the gas, and I head straight down the hill, and as we pick up speed, I had this thought that maybe my parents told me I wasn't allowed to drive the golf cart because I don't know how to drive a golf cart, but I shake that off because I'm busy, okay? And about halfway down the hill, we're doing a solid 25, 30 miles an hour, and I try to swerve out of the way of a pothole. Yeah, you know, the golf cart fishtails this way and that way, and then I lose control completely, and the golf cart flips over on its side with all of these people on it. Now... Before I continue, I should mention that no one was seriously injured in the making of this stupid thing that Bradley did one time. Okay, we all made it out with cuts and bruises. It could have been way worse, right? This was a dumb decision. And I realized that just after the crash, when I got up and I looked around, y'all, it was a mess. The golf cart was tipped up on its side. The wheels were sticking out at weird angles. It was leaking some kind of fluid. I didn't know what it was. My friends were all on the ground in the street. Most of them were hurt in some way. 
And then everything became 100% worse. I looked up the hill, and I saw my dad. Yeah, my dad. He was apparently outside when, when this happened. He had seen the entire thing, and now he was running down the hill in slow motion, down to me and this mess I created. I was terrified. I remember getting up and sprinting over the golf cart to try and with all my might to tip it back up so that I could fix something before he got there. But of course, it was too heavy. I could not move it. And then my dad runs up to me, and I'm talking a mile a minute trying to explain what happened and making these excuses, and I brace myself to get ready to get yelled at. And we're actually going to pause the story right there, okay? So remember that. Cliffhangers are fun. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> but do you know that feeling? Like all of a sudden, you've been caught in the middle of your mess. And you get this awful sensation in the pit of your stomach because you know what's coming next. You're going to get punished or yelled at or made to feel like you're not good enough as if you didn't already know. Maybe you remember that feeling from when you were a kid or maybe you remember that feeling because you are a kid. But if we're all most honest, this feeling of being seen in the midst of our mess and, and this fear of judgment is not relegated to the junior high experience, is it? Sure, the mess on the outside changes as we get older, right? Hopefully there are fewer crashed golf carts among the adult population, although now that I say that, I'm not sure. But the truth is that we all deal with our own messes inside and outside every single day. This happens to all of us. See, back then on the outside, I was a lovesick teenager who stole a golf cart, hurt my friends, and then tried to explain my way out of it. But on the inside, I was a teenager who felt unwanted by my peers trying desperately to get a laugh or, or to be remembered or to belong. And then I put up defenses because I was expecting to be condemned, humiliated, or reminded of all the reasons that I wasn't good enough. So many of us, we look at our own lives, our own messes, and, and the things that we feel insecure about, and it becomes really easy for us to expect that if God could see us in our mess, he would look something like this guy. Don't make me come down there, right? And we think that if he really did come down here, he would strike us down or punish us or at least yell at us and make us feel guilty. Many of us look at ourselves and we think about God and it makes us afraid. So during the weeks of Advent, we're, we're diving into the stories that lead up to the moment where God really did come down here, right, at the birth of Jesus. And spoiler alert, these stories are full of ordinary people who are messy, fearful, insecure, broken, tired, just like you and me. And what we find when we look at these stories is that the coming of God would be so unlike how people expected, and it would reveal to us a God whose kindness and power and peace and presence are far greater than we could ever imagine. So in the first chapter of Luke, we meet a married couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. And before we dive into what happened to them, there's a few important things to know, all right? The first thing is that Elizabeth and Zechariah were righteous. They were good in just about every way you can imagine. They were, they were both part of these prestigious priestly families, and Zechariah was actually a practicing Jewish priest. Luke even says that both of them were righteous in God's eyes, that they did their best to follow all of the Old Testament commandments. See, on the surface, this was a beautiful, almost perfect couple. They were holy people, but even they were not immune to the mess. 
See, the second thing we learn about Elizabeth and Zechariah, it comes in verse 7, and Luke tells us that they were unable to have children. And at this time, if a, if a couple was unable to conceive, there was often this assumption that it was their own fault, that God must be punishing them for something. Now, let's be clear. This was a completely untrue assumption of the character of God and a completely unjust way for society to treat people. In fact, if you're listening this morning and infertility is a part of your story, maybe you've experienced it in the past or you're experiencing it right now, it's so important for you to know that God sees your pain. He sees your story. He cares so deeply for you. And I want to say so clearly that it is not your fault. You are not being punished. And we want to walk with you in that pain because you're not alone. But here's this couple, right? They're living the best lives that they can. They're serving God every day. And they've had to let go of this dream of becoming parents. And because of society's messed up assumptions of God, they have to endure this public stigma. And even worse, they have to wonder if God might be punishing them. Imagine the pain and disappointment they must feel. Imagine the years that they spent praying, asking God for children. Imagine those prayers slowly growing fewer and further between and eventually stopping altogether as they realize that this just isn't going to happen for them. How might that have affected their view of God or their relationship with each other or their ability to hope? Many of us hear that and we can't imagine what that feels like, can't we? Many of us have found ourselves asking God, why? I'm trying to do all the right things, so why can't I find someone to spend my life with? Why can't I find a job? Why did I get sick? Why did I lose that person that I loved? Why are the relationships in my family so broken? Why did my marriage fall apart? Why should I keep praying for fill in the blank when it feels like an answer just isn't coming? This morning, if underneath all the beauty and the busyness of the season, you find yourself growing a little tired of hoping, if underneath all your efforts to do the right things, you feel just a little bit like a mess, or if you're just struggling to keep your head up, first of all, I'd like to say, hi, good morning, we're glad you're here. You're not alone. And second of all, I'd encourage you to stay with me because I believe that God wants to meet us right here in the middle of this mess, not to judge or condemn or tell us to shape up because it's Christmas, but to reveal to us more of his kindness, his power, his peace, and his presence. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 1, and if you don't, it's all good, it'll be on the screen. But in this chapter, Luke chapter 1, we find Zechariah, this priest with no children, experiencing what is most likely the pinnacle of his career, okay? It's a big day, because he was chosen by Lot to burn incense in an inner part of the temple known as the holy place. This was a once-in-a-lifetime privilege for a Jewish priest. He was going by himself to get close to God and to talk to God on behalf of all of Israel. So Zechariah goes into this holy place, and there's a crowd of people praying outside and waiting to see what God has to say. And, and watch what happens. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 11. It says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled, and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, 
Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. So poor Zechariah is just doing his job when all of a sudden this angel appears. And I don't know about you, but the word startled just doesn't seem like a strong enough word to me. I was startled last night when I woke up in the middle of the night with my two-year-old with his face inches from mine going, Daddy. That was startled, right? An angel appearing out of nowhere in a dark room next to an altar of flaming incense sounds to me like a very real M. Night Shyamalan horror film experience, okay? So I don't blame Zechariah for also being gripped with fear. But this does make me wonder what he expected from this messenger of God after years of hearing society's messed up claim that not having children meant that God might be punishing him. What might this messenger have to say? Would Zechariah be yelled at or punished or told exactly why he wasn't good enough to become a father? Whatever his expectation was, this angel actually came with really good news. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. It's okay. God hears you. He cares about your story, and he is so much better than you think. I wonder how many of us need to hear those same words today. Don't be afraid. God hears your prayer. He cares about your story. And he's better than you think. Now, it's important to note that Zechariah and Elizabeth had probably long given up praying for children, right? In the moment that the angel showed up, Zechariah was probably praying for the rescue of Israel, for the Messiah to come to earth, because that was his job as a priest. And the angel would go on to tell Zechariah that his son John would not only be a joy and a delight to him and to Elizabeth, but John would also have this incredible purpose of preparing the people of Israel for the coming of the Messiah, which would be Jesus. Later in this chapter, we find out that it's actually Elizabeth's cousin, Mary, who would become pregnant with Jesus. So not only was God fulfilling the personal dream of these two broken people that he loved, but he was also fulfilling hundreds of years of prayers and dreams and prophecies of his people. He was coming to save this broken world that he loves. God was sending the Messiah. And Zechariah got to be the first one to know this was amazing news. It would have been absolutely mind-blowing to Zechariah as a Jewish priest and positively overwhelming for both Elizabeth and Zechariah as people who longed to be parents. He should have been overjoyed, right? He should have responded with overwhelming gratefulness and fallen down in worship and then run out of that temple to tell everyone what God said. But that's not what happens. Look at verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and unable to speak until this day happens. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. So Zechariah's response to God, it wasn't gratefulness or overwhelming joy. It was shock and disbelief. And it reveals to us a deep, deep mess 
within Zechariah. Instead of taking this good news at face value and rejoicing, he's actually asking for proof. His defenses are up. How can I be sure of this? Because it sounds way too good to be true, and I've been hurt before by disappointment and these dreams that I've had to let die and all the grief and the stigma that comes with it. So God, if you're going to do this, if you're really going to come through this time, you got to give me a sign because I can't bear the risk of hoping blindly only to be disappointed again. A couple months ago, my wife Alex and I were absolutely overjoyed to welcome our son Haven into the world. But just over a year ago, we walked through some of our most broken and painful days as we experienced a miscarriage and had to say goodbye to our daughter Ivy before we had the chance to meet her. And since then, through this grieving process, and even through the beautiful, almost redemptive process of having another child, I've come to this slow realization that it's become difficult for me to get my hopes up. It's become difficult for me to live with the expectation that good things are coming, or to find the courage to trust. So I can totally understand how Zechariah can stand there in the presence of a literal angel and ask for proof that God still cares. Can you? Zechariah's response to Gabriel was a direct reflection of that inner story, that inner mess that he had carried within him for years. And it almost goes without saying that each and every one of us walk into this Advent season with our own stories, all of which reveal celebration and heartache, grief and joy, incredible gratefulness, and profound disappointment, all in equal measure. And the temptation for us, either as people who are trying to follow Jesus or simply as people who have grown up in a culture of independent strength and, and inner fortitude, the temptation is for us to assume that whatever messiness, whatever failure or disappointment or weariness we carry with us is probably just going to get in God's way that we should do our best to carry it on our own, that if God could see this mess, he'd say, oh, Bradley, I've got enough to deal with. You can handle that on your own, can't you? This one's got to be up to you. But see, I believe that Gabriel's response, which was really God's response to Zechariah's disbelief and defensiveness, revealed to him, and it reveals to us today, that God is so much better than we could have expected. He's so much kinder than we could possibly imagine. See, Gabriel's response reveals to us a God who in his vast kindness chooses to move toward the mess with his power, his peace, and his presence. Gabriel starts in verse 19 by reminding Zechariah of God's power. I am Gabriel, he says. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to tell you this good news. Now, the name Gabriel would have been really familiar to Zechariah because he was a Jewish priest. He has studied the Old Testament scriptures, so he would have known that this is the same Gabriel, the same messenger of God that appeared to the prophet Daniel hundreds of years ago. Gabriel was reminding Zechariah that he wasn't just someone who snuck into the temple that day. He was an out-of-this-world, outside-of-time messenger of the Lord, and he was here with good news 
And those reminders of God's power don't stop there. See, Zechariah would find himself unable to speak as he leaves the temple that day, just like Gabriel said. And he would then go home to Elizabeth. And I can picture him hastily scribbling an explanation down to tell Elizabeth why he can't talk. And then eventually, Elizabeth discovers that she is pregnant, just like Gabriel said. And over the following months, God would continue to show his power. And we can imagine their hope continuing to grow even as baby John grew in Elizabeth's womb. But God hadn't moved toward their mess just to show his power. He's better than that. See, when God moved toward their mess, he also brought the gift of his peace. In verse 20, Gabriel informs Zechariah that he will be silent and unable to speak which sounds like two ways to say one thing, right? This seems really redundant in our English translations, but in the original Greek language of the New Testament, we find that the word Gabriel uses for silent means to hold your peace, to be still as a calm sea. Gabriel was saying, Zechariah, in return for your disbelief and for the fear and the worry and the pain that you brought into this temple, God is giving you the gift of his peace. In return for your disbelief, God is giving you his peace, God's peace. The same peace that Paul would write about later in Philippians chapter four when he encourages us to bring our whole selves to God when we pray. Paul actually says that the peace of God, which goes far beyond anything we can understand, it will guard our hearts and our minds. So God wasn't just quieting Zechariah's mouth. He was guarding his heart. He was quieting his spirit, bringing peace to his mind, calming his fear. And God also drew near to Zechariah with his presence. See, if we read further in this story, we find out that not only Zechariah was unable to speak, but he was also unable to hear in response to Zechariah's unbelief, God, in his kindness, made it so that the only one he could easily communicate with was God. I can almost hear him whispering, walk with me, Zechariah. I know you're afraid. I know you have questions, and I'm not going anywhere. This is between you and me. Friends, please don't miss this. Even in the midst of this important work that God was doing in moving toward the mess of all of humanity through the birth of Jesus, God knew Elizabeth and Zechariah's story. He saw the mess of their disappointment and their pain, and God drew near to them on an individual, personal level with his power, his peace, and his presence. And he does the same exact thing for you and for me. This is how God works. It's who he was then. And it's who he is right here today in your season, whatever you bring in here. We have a story to finish. So there I was. I was standing at the bottom of a hill, surrounded by this mess that I made. And I was face to face with my dad. Y'all, my defenses were up, okay? I'm talking a mile a minute. I'm trying to explain what happened, and I'm making excuses, and my dad grabs me by the shoulders, and I brace myself to get yelled at. And my dad says, are you okay? 
I was dumbfounded. That is not what I was expecting. I was like, uh, yeah, I'm okay. And then I watched as he went over to each of my friends and he made sure that they were okay. And then he came back over to that tipped over golf cart that I was too weak to lift on my own. And he said, it's all right, son, let me help. And together we lifted the golf cart back up. And then he cleaned up our wounds. He helped everyone get home. And to this day, I have no idea how that golf cart got fixed, but I know that my dad was there every step of the way. Y'all, I don't know what messes you're carrying into this season. I don't know what disappointments or, or worries or pain come to mind as you hear Elizabeth and Zechariah's story. But I do know that right now, this morning, God sees you. He sees you. He knows your story. And he knows the story of every single person that you're worried about this season. And he's so much better, so much kinder than we could possibly imagine. So this Advent, may you give up that false assumption that, that God wants to punish or condemn you for the mess you find yourself in. May you know that God sees you and he knows every detail about you and he approaches you the same way my dad approached me at the bottom of that hill, the same way that God approached Elizabeth and Zechariah in their mess, in loving kindness, with his power and his peace and his presence. And may these truths stir up our own loving kindness just a little bit this season so we can approach others, our friends and our family with the same compassionate response that God brings to us. I'm gonna invite the band up. Let's pray together. Father, we live in a broken world. I'm reminded of the verse, John 16, 22. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Father, so often we get bogged down by, by our own disappointments or, or our pain, or by our insecurities or by our failures, and we forget your goodness. God, we're sorry. Father, this season, we want to experience you more. We want to know your goodness in a new way. So God, would you help us to know that your kindness is turned toward us, that your power is for us. God, that your presence is with us. And Father, would you help us be awake and alive to your peace, which goes beyond what we can understand. And now as we worship together, God, would you help us to just bring our whole selves to you? Because you are good, you are kind, you are powerful, you are present, you are the Prince of Peace. In Jesus' name.